Well, in the spring of 2001, my wife Christine and I made the biggest purchase of our lives. We bought our first home. We'd only been married for about three years, uh, but we made that big decision to buy our first home, a 1,600-square-foot beauty right here in the city of Victorville. From the front, that house looked like all garage and very little house, but that was our little slice of paradise. Uh, The following year, in 2002, we brought home our first daughter, Kayla, and she came home to that beautiful little house of ours on Chamberlain Drive. Two and a half years later, we brought home Haley. In 2006, we brought home our third daughter, Grace, and then three years later in 2009, we brought home our fourth daughter, Kara. And so all four of our girls were brought home to that little Chamberlain home. Over the years that they were kids and growing up, we made some wonderful memories in that house Uh, There were many times that the girls would be in the family room with their little American Girl dolls and with their Barbies playing and coloring pictures and doing all sorts of fun things. Out in the backyard, the girls spent hours and hours on that jungle gym and on the swing set. And I don't think I'll ever forget the day Christine and I had the screen door open on a hot summer day and the girls were out in the little kiddie pool on the back patio. And we overheard our oldest, Kayla, officiating baptisms for her younger sisters. And there she was doing her pretend baptisms, and we heard her say so clearly, I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, buried with Christ and raised to walk a brand new life. (laughs) And Christine and I were just so tickled that those girls had remembered what they learned in church. Well, as you might imagine, when the day finally came, to sell that house in 2014. That was bittersweet. And I remember I did one final walkthrough of that house, making sure we had cleared out everything from the garage. I made sure to wipe down the countertops and and check the closets and the cupboards. I made sure that the floors weren't dusty and that the bathrooms were clean. As I walked through that front door one final time and locked the door and handed those keys off to the realtor. I got into my car and drove away one last time from that house. That was a hard goodbye. That was a difficult goodbye for me. And it kind of reminds me of this goodbye we're going to look at today in the life of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, after he had spent three years ministering to those Christians there in Ephesus and doing such a wonderful ministry, Paul said a a goodbye to them. That must have been very, very difficult. We'll take a closer look at that difficult goodbye today. That goodbye begins in verse 17 of Acts chapter 20. And I I didn't want to completely ignore those first 16 verses because a lot happens in those first 16 verses of chapter 20. Remember what happened at the end of chapter 19 as Paul was wrapping up his three-year ministry there in Ephesus. We saw last week that Paul there at the end of chapter 19 was dealing with a riot. This mob had formed. A silversmith named Demetrius had gotten his cronies together and they convinced the town that Paul was the enemy, that Paul was trying to defame and even destroy that goddess Artemis that they valued and worshipped. And so this mob had formed, and 
Finally, we find in the early verses of chapter 20 that that mob had dispersed and that pandemonium had settled down. We see that in those opening verses of chapter 20, Paul does move on uh, from that town of Ephesus. Uh, He says a quick goodbye there early in the chapter, but this is not the main goodbye we're talking about. This goodbye in the first couple verses of chapter 20 is more like a see you later. Later in the chapter, he gets to that difficult goodbye. Luke gives us the briefest of ministry summaries in verse 2. Paul traveled throughout northern Greece, speaking many words of encouragement to the people. As you look at this uh, photo here, this image, I should say, of Paul's third missionary journey, after he had been in Ephesus, he heads up to Troas. That's where he had uh, picked up Luke as one of his missionary companions several years earlier. And from Troas, he goes back into northern Greece, that area called Macedonia uh, here in the book of Acts. And so uh, we can pretty much bet that he went to those three cities where he had planted churches on his second missionary journey. In all likelihood, he went to Philippi and to Thessalonica and then to Berea. Then he went down into southern Greece. We read about that early in chapter 20 here. That lower area of Greece was oftentimes called Achaia in those days. I think I pronounced it wrong last week. It should be pronounced Achaia, southern Greece. And so most likely he was in the city of Corinth for a period of time, probably for about three months. We believe it was in the city of Corinth where Paul wrote his Magna Carta, the book of Romans there in the New Testament. And so he did some great ministry there in Corinth. And as you can see, he made his way back up north. He had from Corinth planned on heading to Jerusalem. It appears that he wanted to be in Jerusalem uh, by the time of Passover. He wanted to be there to celebrate the Passover with his fellow Jewish Christians. But his plans were changed. We find that he discovered a plot right before he left, a plot to take his life. And so as he's about to head out, we can kind of imagine Paul maybe was on the gangplank about to board that ship. And he discovered that some Jews that were also boarding that ship to head down to that Passover feast in Jerusalem, uh, they thought they would reenact the story of Jonah. (laughs) Partway across the Mediterranean Sea, they just take Paul by the shirt collar and toss him overboard. Paul thought, well, you know what, that's probably not a, a good thing for me to play the part of Jonah. It's not God's timing yet. And so Paul, when he learns of that plot, he heads back north into northern Greece instead of heading uh, there to to Jerusalem. And so we find several important things taking place early in this chapter. And in verses 7 through 12, I, I want to point out to you that Luke tells us uh, some of the details of the weekend worship service in Troas. And so when they're there in Troas, where they picked up Luke a few years earlier, uh, there they have a, a week-long ministry that seems to culminate in this Sunday worship service. Notice in verse 7, it says, The church gathered together on the first day of the week. In other words, they gathered on Sunday. Now, they seem to have been going with the Jewish calendar and the Jewish way of how days and nights worked. Remember, uh, Jews didn't have their new day begin at midnight. They had a new day begin at 6 p.m. So when it says they came together on the first day of the week, we're pretty certain they came together after 6 p.m. on Saturday night. It was an evening worship service that will end up stretching past midnight. And so there we find that this was a priority for the Christians to come together on the first day of the week. 
Uh, it seems like it was also a priority for them to take communion together. That's what it means when it says they were breaking bread. Uh, that is reiterating what we read early in the book of Acts, in Acts 2.42, where the priorities of the early church in Jerusalem are mentioned. The breaking of bread is listed as one of the top priorities for the early church. And so that's why we at Impact uh, take communion every week. It was a priority for the early church, so we want it to be a weekly priority for us as well. Well, according to verse 7, that evening worship service went long, primarily because of, of Paul's sermon. He was talking on and on, it says, until midnight. And you thought my prayer, my uh, sermon sometimes went long. I guarantee you, I, I've never preached a sermon as long as Paul's sermon here in Acts chapter 20. Well, it's really late in the evening. Uh, Midnight's approaching. There are many lamps burning in that third-story room where the church was gathered together. And so the air was stuffy. It was probably hot. And and one young Christian named Eutychus is in the crowd. And, And Luke, the writer of Acts, spends a few verses talking about young Eutychus. He's described as a young man. If you look at the original Greek word, this term normally referred to a young man who was between the ages of 8 and 14. So Eutychus was either a preteen or a young teenage boy. You can imagine the scene. Mom or dad or grandma had had drugged this kid to church that night. And uh, he was probably a believer. He probably uh, loved Paul as much as the next guy. But you know what? He's a kid. And so as it becomes 10 p.m. and 10.30 and 11 p.m., this kid's getting tired. And it's hot and stuffy in that room. All these oil lamps are burning. And so he decides he needs some fresh air. And so he sits in the windowsill to get some fresh air. And so there's young Eutychus sitting in the windowsill. It's 11 o'clock, 11.15. He's, he's starting to yawn a bit starting to get tired, and so he probably rubs his eyes a few times, stretches a little bit, maybe stands up and stretches a bit, tries to get the the blood a pumping, Uh, maybe slaps himself in the cheek a few times just to do whatever he can to wake up. He doesn't want to get in trouble with mom or dad or grandma or whoever brought him. But after a while, the young lad finally falls asleep. He can't hold his eyes open any longer. And as he's fast asleep, the poor little guy shifts positions to get more comfortable, and unfortunately, he couldn't fly. He shifts positions, and he ends up falling out of the third-story window and crashes to his death on the dirt below. What a sad, sad state he was in. Eutychus sat on a wall. Eutychus had a great fall, and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Eutychus back together again. Well, it's not unusual for someone to fall asleep during a sermon, but usually when they do it, they don't die. Unfortunately, Eutychus did plummet to his death. Personally, I am proud of my perfect track record. Over the years that I've been preaching, I've had a lot of people fall asleep during one of my sermons, But I can say I have never had anyone die after falling asleep during one of my sermons. So I've got something going for me that the Apostle Paul didn't. (laughs) Well, anyway, verse 10, Paul rushes downstairs, throws himself on top of the young man, and God raised him from the dead. Now, you would think that Paul had learned his lesson. 
He'd say, okay, church, you know what? It's getting to be kind of late. Let's just go home and get some sleep. But oh no, he and the rest of the church head right back upstairs to that third floor, hot, stuffy room, and they continue the worship service. They have a meal together sometime after midnight, and then Paul starts preaching some more. Part two of his sermon, and it says he preached until daylight. So he preached for another five hours or so. This guy loved to preach, and the church loved to hear the preaching of God's word. Well, the following day, Paul and his traveling companions headed out. They traveled from Troas to a port, a few port cities, but they end up in Miletus. Miletus was as the bird flies about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And there in Miletus, Paul is going to summon the Ephesian elders for his great farewell, his difficult goodbye. And that's where we pick up today in verse 17 here in Acts chapter 20. So follow along in your Bibles, Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away many disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most 
was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. May God bless us as we study his word today. In the book of Acts, Luke's, Luke records eight of Paul's sermons. And, and this one here, this little speech he gives here, this great farewell, this, this goodbye speech, this one is unique. This one's unique. Unlike the other seven speeches of Paul recorded in the book of Acts, this is not an evangelistic sermon spoken to non-Christians or a defense of Paul before any sort of civil authority. Warren Wearsby says it this way. His address to the Ephesian elders is unique in that it reveals Paul the pastor rather than Paul the evangelist or Paul the defender of the faith. I think that's well said. Pastor Paul. I really like the sound of that. Pastor Paul. Pastor Paul offers this heartwarming goodbye to a group of Christian leaders who he loved. Now, who are these elders who Paul addresses? Well, in the New Testament, there are several synonyms that are used interchangeably when it comes to church leaders. Elder, pastor, and overseer. All three words are used interchangeably referencing the human leaders in a Christian church. And each of these words kind of highlights a different aspect of that role of elder. That word elder itself uh, typically, more uh, literally, means an older one. And so Old Testament Judaism, typically an elder, was a gentleman with gray hair. He was older and wiser. In the New Testament, it doesn't seem like Paul or even Jesus himself required an elder to be older in age, but certainly they had to be older in the faith. They had to be mature Christian men. That term pastor simply means shepherd. And so that term pastor for church leaders refers to the elders' role of being spiritual shepherds, protecting, guiding, nurturing, feeding those under their care in the church. And then finally, that third word, overseer, in the King James translation, some older translations, that word overseer is translated as bishop. Bishop and overseer, really the same word. That word overseer calls to mind that they are leaders in the church. And so you've got these three together. They are more mature in their faith. Uh, They are spiritual shepherds and they are spiritual leaders in the church. Those are the human leaders God has placed over any individual congregation. And as we see elders in the New Testament, we see that they're mentioned in the plural. This idea of having a pastor as CEO of the church is not nearly as biblically based as this idea of a team of elders leading a church. And so here at Impact, we try to follow this model. We have a team of elders. I'm one of those elders, but we try to make big decisions together. We also have the staff that together we try to make many of our big decisions as a church. We try not to follow a pastor as CEO approach to leadership. And so here in verses 18 through 35, Paul's goodbye contains some meaty instruction, just like his New Testament letters have meaty instruction. In these 18 verses of Paul's goodbye speech, he touches on these key themes that you'll also find in the 13 letters of Paul in the New Testament. And so if you read through all 13 of his epistles, you would find some of these same themes 
that he speaks to the Ephesian elders. Real quickly, repentance and faith he touches on here in verse 21. The inevitability of of suffering, verses 23 and 24. He talks to those Ephesian elders briefly about running the race, uh, not throwing in the towel, not giving up, but running the race well that God has given us. In verses 24 and 32, he talks about the grace of God. That's one of Paul's favorite themes in his epistles. He talks about the kingdom of God in verse 25. He speaks of the redeeming blood of Christ in verse 28. That's a a key theme in Romans and also in Galatians. He speaks of the role of church elders in verses 28 through 31. He speaks of the danger of false teachers in verses 29 and 30. And finally, he speaks of our eternal reward there in verse 32. Now, if you like to outline passages of Scripture, you're in luck because this speech of Paul's is pretty easy to outline. It can be broken into three parts, past, present, and future. He speaks about his own past ministry in verses 18 through 21. He speaks of his present ministry in verses 22 to 27. And he teaches about the future in verses 28 through 38. Let's look at each of these rather quickly. First of all, he speaks of his past ministry in verses 18 through 21. I want you to notice a few things in these verses where he talks about his past ministry. For starters, notice how Paul mentions the way he lived among the Ephesians during that three years he was with them. Notice how he points out he lived with everything he had from the first day he came into town. He lived with everything he had to give from the first day. Paul didn't wait a week or even a few days before he started carrying out his God-given mission. Some people hit the ground running. Paul hit the ground serving. Remember that. Paul hit the ground serving when he had arrived on that very first day in Ephesus. Look again at verse 19. Paul says, I serve the Lord with great humility and with tears although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. In other words, even though at times Paul was under attack, even though they were coming at him, he didn't get cocky, he didn't get angry, and he didn't get bitter. He stayed humble before God, and he ministered to the people of Ephesus with love and compassion. Here in these verses, Paul reveals his motive. Paul wasn't in it for the money, and he certainly wasn't taking the path of least resistance. From day one, his motive was to serve the Lord by preaching God's word to everyone who would listen. He preached in the synagogues. He preached from home to home. He preached out in the marketplace and in other public places. He would preach anywhere people were willing to listen because he wanted to use every opportunity God gave him to point people to Jesus Christ. As Paul says in verse 21, I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Well, after highlighting his past ministry in Ephesus, Paul makes a shift in verse 22. He goes to the second part in this outline of his speech. He starts talking about his present ministry. That's part two in verses 22 through 27. Take another look with me at what Paul says in verses 22 and 23. He writes, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. 
Now, remember that Luke wrote two books in the New Testament. He didn't just write the book of Acts. He also wrote the gospel according to Luke, the third book in our New Testaments. And if you look at the book of Luke, you'll discover that in the final third of that book, Jesus is focused on Jerusalem. The final third of the Gospel of Luke focuses on Jesus' trek to Jerusalem and all that takes place there, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And you'll find a similar thing in the book of Acts. In the final third of the book of Acts, Paul sets his sights on Jerusalem and ends up being arrested and suffering and eventually, years later in Rome, being crucified. And so those who have studied both books, particularly the last third of both books, have noticed a lot of similarities between Jesus and Paul. Both had their sights set on Jerusalem. Jesus and Paul both knew that the path to Jerusalem was not the path of least resistance, but they chose that path anyway because God had told them to go. That's why Jesus went. God the Father told him to go. And that's why Paul went to Jerusalem, because God the Father had told him to go. And you've just got to love what Paul says in verse 24. This is such an amazing verse. I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Isn't that good? I consider my life worth nothing if I don't invest it completely in the work of God. This is one of the reasons why Paul is a hero of our faith. It didn't matter to him if he was treated like royalty or treated like chopped liver. It didn't matter if he was liked or disliked. It didn't matter if he was loved or hated, accepted or rejected. No matter how people treated him, he was bound and determined to finish the race God had set out for him. He was going to complete his God-given task no matter what. You just got to love that about Paul. He didn't get blown by the winds of culture and change and the the winds of popular opinion around him. He set out to do what God called him to do, and nothing was going to stop him from doing it. Well, Paul makes one final shift in verse 28 to highlight the Ephesian elders' future ministry. That's part three. He highlights their future ministry. There were some warnings he wanted to give them. There were some snapshots of what he knew were going to be happening to that church because of what the Holy Spirit had revealed to him prophetically. Paul gives the Ephesian elders this clear warning about what was coming down the pike. He points out in verses 29 and 30, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. God had warned Paul probably on more than one occasion that persecution was coming, not from jealous Jews or from angry Artemis worshipers, but persecution and attack would be coming from within the church's own ranks. These wolves would start teaching a false gospel of legalism, and they would try to divide and conquer the church for their own benefit. So Paul gives these Ephesian elders some clear commands. Command number one. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Notice it's, it's easy when we read this verse to skip over 
the first group they're supposed to keep watch over. Before you as elders, as shepherds, as overseers, before you shepherd and oversee others in your church, first make sure you're shepherding and overseeing yourself. Watch your own self in your own doctrine first. Keep watch over yourselves and then keep watch over the flock. I like how Bible scholar John Stott says it. He says, the Ephesian pastors must first keep watch over themselves and only then over the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made them responsible. For they cannot care adequately for others if they neglect the care and culture of their own souls. Let me read that last sentence again. They cannot adequately care for others if they neglect the care and culture of their own souls. When I read that, it reminded me of what I used to hear all the time the stewardesses say when they gave the little walkthrough at the beginning of a flight. Remember, they would say in the unlikely event of, of cabin depressurization, oxygen masks will fall from the ceiling. If you have small children with you, first put the mask over yourself and then put it over your child. Why do they say that? Because if I, as the parent, am not breathing, I am of no use to my child, right? Similarly, if the leaders in a church are not nurturing and caring for their own souls spiritually, how on earth can they nurture the souls of those who are entrusted to their care? So command number one, keep watch over yourselves and the flock. Command number two, also in verse 28, be shepherds of God's church. Be shepherds. Don't be wolves. The wolves are coming. Do not, under any circumstances, be a wolf. Be a shepherd of God's flock. Take good care of those under your care. And then finally, in verse 31, the third command, be on your guard because those wolves are coming. Paul had to speak to these leaders in the church and warn them to watch over themselves and their flock, to be shepherds of God's church and be on their guard. And Paul's hard goodbye draws to a close in verses 36 through 38. Notice what he says there. Actually, he's not speaking. Luke is just narrating what happens. Beginning in verse 36, when Paul had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. Well, I want to share with you in closing four important lessons that we can pull from this great passage today. So if you're taking notes, I encourage you to jot these down. These are important. Lesson number one, ministry rarely goes exactly as planned. So you need to stay humble and roll with it. Amen. You need to stay humble. And roll with it. In verse 3, Paul was ready to sail for Jerusalem. His bags were packed. He might have been already on the gangplank. He was excited about making it to Jerusalem in time for Passover. He probably hadn't been in Jerusalem for Passover in well over three years. He was excited to be there. He wanted to be there. And bam, curveball. He hears of that plot to either toss him overboard or to kill him in some other way. And so he had to change his plans like that in an instant. He didn't want to be swimming with the fishes that night, so he had to change his plans. Paul rolled with it. Some people wonder how I've been able to stay at our church for so many years, 23 years. There's really a few reasons for that. 
Reason number one, God has told me to be here. And he hasn't changed the marching orders and told me to go somewhere else. The second reason, this is a great church. Why wouldn't I want to stay? This is a great church. It's a good place to pastor. It's a good place to serve. It's a good place to, 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 to be with you and, and to do God's work with you. And there's another reason that I've been here so long. I've tried to live out this lesson. When things haven't gone my way, I've tried hard to roll with it. If you want any sort of stamina or perseverance in ministry, you've got to roll with the punches. It's one of the secrets to doing good long-term ministry. We don't compromise our beliefs or our biblical values, but all sorts of curveballs are thrown our way in church ministry. It's par for the course. We've got to stay humble, and sometimes we just got to roll with it. Lesson number two. Sometimes sermons go longer than expected. So if you're feeling groggy, don't sit by an open window. All right, that lesson was just for fun. Lesson number three. Here we go. Like Paul, try to always have a from day one attitude. You have precious little time to impact the lives around you. So hit the ground serving. Would you say that last sentence with me? Hit the ground serving. Tell someone if you're sitting next to somebody, hit the ground serving. Amen? Years ago, when my kids were small, plenty of older and wiser parents came up to Christine and me and said, enjoy it because before you know it, they'll be grown. These days will fly by. And now I've got two kids that have already graduated from high school. My third daughter is quickly making her way toward her senior year. The days are flying by so quickly. And you know what? Those older and wiser adults were right. Those younger years with my kids, they did fly by. And now I'm a little bit older and wiser, and I'm telling young parents the exact same thing that people told me. Enjoy it because they are short-lived, those years with our little kids in the house. Well, like me, maybe you've been blessed with the opportunity to do ministry in the same place for a long time. But even if you're blessed with a long ministry, The fact remains, every ministry opportunity is temporary. It's true. Every ministry opportunity is temporary. I've been at our church for over 23 years, but it's still temporary, isn't it? One day and one way or another, it'll come to an end. Every opportunity God has given you to do ministry and to do his work is is temporary. That brief few moments you're standing in the line at Walmart, it's temporary. And so... Make the most of it. Those opportunities God gives you as a greeter at church or maybe doing phone ministries, reaching out to shut-ins and widows, whatever that ministry might be, it's temporary. The opportunities we have to give generously, they're temporary opportunities. And so every ministry opportunity being temporary necessitates that we make the most of it. Don't squander the time you've been given. Hit the ground serving And give it your all from day one. And like Paul, when you're looking at your ministry in your rear view mirror, you'll know that you did your very best. Lesson number four. Finish strong. Far too many Christians start strong and finish weak. You know it's true. 
So many Christians start strong and finish weak. For some of you, it may be too late to live out lesson number three. You're involved in a ministry already, and you look back and realize, I did not hit the ground serving. In fact, my start was pretty lousy. It was a pretty shoddy start to the ministry I'm involved in. And I want you to take comfort in knowing you're not alone. Many of us are in the same boat. We have trouble living out lesson number three because we didn't hit the ground serving. As Paul looked back on his own life when he was a young adult, when he was involved in ministry, he had a terrible start. In fact, Paul, later in the New Testament, says that he was the worst of sinners. Think about it. He wasn't nurturing Christians early in ministry. He was arresting them and trying to kill them. He wasn't growing churches early in his ministry years. He was trying to close them down. He didn't have a great start to his adult years, did he? He didn't have a great start to his ministry. But then Jesus Christ met him on the road road to Damascus, and Paul experienced a complete turnaround. He gave his life to Jesus Christ, and he drew the line in the sand and said, from now on, I'm going to give Jesus Christ everything I've got. He didn't start well, but Paul sure finished well, didn't he? He sure finished well. He fought the good fight. He finished the race. And so can you. I was flipping through the New Testament the other day and I stumbled upon Jesus' parable of the two sons over in Matthew chapter 21, verses 28 through 31. And it's a short little parable. Here's what Jesus says. There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. That son answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. That's a pretty deep parable. gets us thinking. I want to ask you, which son are you more like? Are you like the first son? who said, no, I'm not going to do it. Sometimes your mouth gets you in trouble, but then you come to your senses and you decide you're going to finish well and do what God told you to do. Or are you more like the second son, who's great at giving God lip service, but you don't come through in the end? You don't follow through on what you promised to do. Are you more like the first son or the second son? You have one week less on this earth than when we met together last Sunday. You have precious little time. You and I have little time to lose. So if you're serious about living for Jesus Christ, live for Him with everything you've got. Maybe you didn't start well, but finish strong. Finish strong, church. Let's all finish strong. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And honestly, we have to admit that many of us didn't start so well. We've dropped the ball and we've squandered days and weeks and in some cases even years that we can never reclaim for you. But Lord, we can claim today. And every day you give us beyond today, we can claim those days for you. So, Lord, help us to follow in Paul's footsteps. To stop beating ourselves up because of our mistakes of the past and keep our eyes on the prize. To finish strong. 
to finish the race, to keep the faith, and to fight that good fight. Lord Jesus, help us to finish strong for the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, maybe you've had some tough goodbyes recently. But you know what? In the days to come, Jesus Christ does have some very, very important work for you to do. There are people in your life that I don't have in my life. There are people that you can influence that I can't influence in the same way that you can. And so it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what your spiritual gifts are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're there at home watching this online and not even able to come in person. Regardless of your situation, if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, God can use you in the days you have left. Believe it. And go to him today and say, God, here I am. I don't feel like I have much to offer, but what I have, it's yours. Use me for your glory because I want to finish strong for you. If you're here today and you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ, please make that decision today. I like to share with our church the ABCs. A, you need to admit that you were a sinner and that you need a Savior. B, you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and he's your only hope of being forgiven and making it to heaven. And C, you need to choose to begin serving him and following him today. To put him in the driver's seat of your life. You see, when you say a prayer to receive Christ, you're not just jumping through some hoops so you get fire insurance so you won't go to hell. You're making the decision to take Jesus Christ into your life as your Savior and as your boss. That's what the word Lord means, to be the leader, the boss of your life. You want him in the driver's seat. If you're ready to make that decision today, and if you're ready to make it clear to God, the angels, and anyone that's watching that you're serious about that decision by being baptized, I encourage you to reach out to us by phone or email right now. You can reach us by phone at 760-246-4100. If you get the voicemail, just leave a voicemail for us and we'll call you back. Or you can email us at info at greaterimpact.cc. We hope to hear from you in the next few minutes because there's no better decision than than the decision to accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of your life. Well, if you're not joining us for communion today, I want to say God bless you as you walk in faith and love and serve the Lord Jesus Christ with everything you've got. If you're going to be hanging on for communion, that'll start in just a few seconds. God bless you.